Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of Ray Bradbury, and today we start The Martian Chronicles, the first of his major works that he put together, but, and we should emphasize this right at the outset, kind of a strange and piecemeal work at that. Um, as much as this is usually sort of collected together into a novel, I should very much emphasize that these are predominantly short stories first, collected into this sort of loose association of a novel, and only afterwards were the like passages sort of linking all of this information together. There are direct inconsistencies and contradictions throughout the course of this book. Um, the portrayal of the Martians is not necessarily consistent throughout, and this does kind of work as an overarching story, uh, but only kind of secondarily. But that's that's kind of a thing that we're going to see a lot in Ray Bradbury. And honestly, if we go on to talk about other science fiction writers, we're going to find the same thing there as well. Um, here in the 1950s and 60s, when science fiction is being written, this sort of, like, aspiration to a canon is really not the, pro the like, top priority for most of these writers. Um, you will find that actually quite a few golden age science fiction writers sort of start out as writing short stories and writing disconnected novels, and then only later, i.e. after the advent of the creation of Lord of the Rings and this sort of new fascination with these big, sprawling, interconnected universes, do you see these same writers starting to weave their original ideas together into kind of loose, like, canonical tales. Um, you see Asimov do this, like Asimov had three very distinct sort of series in uh, the, the Robot Trilogy, the Empire Trilogy, and then the Foundation uh, novels, and then very much toward the later part of Asimov's career, he started writing books that connected the trilogies together, which oftentimes are way less compelling than the original books themselves, and that really only kind of loosely stick them all together. Um, Heinlein does the same thing. Like, he has all of these, you know, hugely important, hugely groundbreaking novels, and, you know, Stranger in a Strange Land, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, um, and then only later does he try to make them all fit together, which is even more difficult than in Asimov's case. Because in Asimov, at least his series, like, the trilogies were all so dislocated in time that they could theoretically be strung together with millennia, like, interwoven between them. For Heinlein, he has to go all the way to, like, create multiple dimensions. You know, we end up with a Heinlein multiverse in works like The Cat Who Walked Through Walls. Um, Bradbury, though, I find less guilty of this particular sin. Uh, as much as The Martian Chronicles is sort of a bunch of his short stories about Mars stuck in one collection, like all put together for one reason or another, um, I should also emphasize that it was collected fairly early on in the process. Uh, but like, much against the sort of, you know, big, sprawling, multi-series epic, you know, like, connections that we were talking about with Asimov or Heinlein um, in the wake of Lord of the Rings, the Martian Chronicles kind of set themselves up for this. Um, Bradbury usually works like this in his short story writing. 
Um, he has certain locations that he returns to again and again, and when he returns to those places, he also tends to return to certain themes, as well as certain, like, characteristics of the setting which are consistent. Um, so on Mars, we get this overarching picture of, like, an ancient dying Martian race, the, you know, eager colonizing humans showing up to sort of take over the place, and then that very much kind of not working out for them for one reason or another, as we'll talk about. Um, likewise, I'm also a huge fan of Bradbury's stories about Venus. Um, like, on Venus, according to Bradbury, it is raining, like, all of the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and this, you know, hostile environment, like this planet of just constant uninhabitability is taxing to any person who actually stays there. If the Martian Chronicles are a story of human hubris in the sense of, like, why is it our business to go stomping all across this beautiful world that has nothing to do with us, Venus is about our hubris in the sense of it is way more than we should be, you know, biting off. Like, this is an inhuman place that is actively working against us at all times, and it is painfully obvious to everyone that we should not be here. Uh, but we'll talk about that in its own time. There's a particularly good story in, uh, in the Illustrated Man collection that, that really illustrates this point. Um, but here, when we talk about the Martian Chronicles, I want to keep this idea in the back of our minds. On the one hand, we are going to treat this as one consistent novel. On the other hand, we are going to look at this as a collection of short stories. We are going to try and keep like both of these things in mind as we go forward. We're not going to get hung up on the logical inconsistencies. You know, you probably at this point listened to some of my lectures on mythology, so you know that I'm not a stickler for canon here. Um, instead, what I want to do is talk about these pieces kind of individually and next to one another, again, as though it were a short story collection as much as it is sort of a consistent overarching narrative. Um, I want to talk about the artifice that Bradbury is using, the way that he does arrange these stories, the way that he does sort of doctor them up to make one consistent story, um, but I also want to sort of let each one breathe and stand for itself in its own right. Um, now, with that in mind, the other thing that we need to talk about before we dive into this actual book is the situation of science at this particular point in time. Um, so, we are telling one of many stories uh, that kind of were inspired by some bad science here. Um, specifically, uh, like, here in the Martian Chronicles, we are assuming a Mars that has a, a bunch of people already living on it. Um, this is something typical of the early 20th century. Uh, up until about the 1940s and 50s, um, there were a lot of science fiction stories assuming the existence of an alien race on Mars, largely because a number of scientists and a number of sort of mistakes in scientific uh, observation and a couple of mistranslated papers and stuff, um, ended up sort of bringing to American consciousness especially this idea that there were canals on Mars. In the latter half of the 19th century, there were a couple of papers that, like, using the sort of kind of rudimentary telescopes of the time, um, that suggested that there were seas on Mars, like bodies of water, 
Um, people were looking at Mars through these rough telescopes from unideal conditions and seeing that there were like dark blotches, which they took to be bodies of water. Uh, we had technology enough to see Mars much closer than ever before, but it was still not great. And then once the original telescopes were, or the first like really sophisticated observatories and telescopes were being made at the turn of the century, um, the people who were using them often did not appreciate the fact that they were kind of super imposing the uh, the veins of their own eyes onto the landscape of Mars, which then equated in their minds to, again, canals, like bodies of water being connected to each other. And in the 19th century, especially when, like, the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal are, like, the two greatest feats of human engineering, this sort of really quickly turns into there is this incredibly sophisticated, incredibly industrialized, um, very, you know, intelligent and sophisticated species living on Mars, building these canals, and basically being part of a uh, civilization that is more complex than our own. Um, and a lot of science fiction writers at the time just ran away with this idea. Like, science fiction up until this point has been a pretty rough landscape. Like, you've got the likes of Shelley with Frankenstein sort of inventing the genre, so to speak, though, honestly, there had been many stories about, like, civilizations on other planets before this, um, many of which were just sort of fanciful or satirical, you know, in, in, the, in the vein of something like Gulliver's Travels, uh, sort of these travelogue stories of, like, I went to the moon and I met all these people and they were really weird and this is why they were weird, but isn't that also an interesting look at our own life and stuff. Um, like, many of those stories definitely existed at this point, and many of them were sort of uh, likely, you know, inspiration for the science fiction stories going forward. Uh, but science fiction as a, as a genre kind of has to exist in the same space as science. Like, the difference between Shelley's Frankenstein and some of these older travelogue stories is that Shelley was working with scientific knowledge of the time. Um, and as the genre developed, especially through the efforts of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, who very much did use the contemporary scientific knowledge of the time as plot points and important details in their work, um, we were very much moving towards a science fiction that was rooted in hard science. Like, we wanted our stories to be plausible given the scientific knowledge of the time. Um, and in the Golden Age, with the likes of Asimov and Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke especially, um, there was an overwhelming abundance of these sorts of hard sci-fi stories, stories that very much used the cutting-edge science of the day to inform whatever the, the plot or the, the fancy gadgets or whatever were, were being employed at that time. Um, the Canals of Mars being one of those big scientific advancements means that there were a lot of stories that sort of use this idea of, hey, there's a sophisticated Martian society on this other planet. Um, but it should also be noticed that, like, Bradbury and quite a few of the later stories in this kind of, like, hey, there's the sophisticated Martian species out there, um, be it, like, Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, or, you know, Bradbury's Martian Chronicles here, or even H.G. Wells's The War, uh, the War of the Worlds, um, you kind of get this sense that they know this is nonsense, um, and this is kind of this move from uh, science fiction being rooted in good science to science fiction being speculative and kind of being okay with bad science when it serves an interesting storytelling purpose. 
Um, again, one of the things about the Martian Chronicles, if we are looking at it as kind of both a novel and also a short story collection, is that it was written over a fairly long period of time. Um, like, we are going to see, you know, the novel itself was published in 1950, but most of these constituent stories, which again is most of like, especially the major stories in this work, were published between roughly 1946 and 1950. Um, so on the one hand, we should emphasize like, Bradbury probably knows better. At this point, the idea of the canals of Mars have been debunked, but either the ideas have been kicking around in his head for long enough and have finally just manifested in the last several years, um, that he doesn't see any point in changing them. Or alternatively, he's okay with this, you know, new scientific development debunking his science fiction, and he still thinks his stories are worthwhile and relevant, which it's kind of hard to argue against that. Um, especially nowadays, when science fiction can absolutely be completely divorced from contemporary scientific achievements, or very much just sort of take a wild speculative turn. Uh, you know, I, I think of all of the stories nowadays about, like, the parallel universes and the way that, like, Bioshock Infinite deals with that, or, you know, the way that the, the multiverse stuff in the contemporary movie world tends to use this stuff. Like, this is a very rough-cut scientific theory, something that, you know, scientists have kicked around the possibility of but cannot in any way justify as, you know, being scientific fact. But it is a very rich vein of imaginative possibility for many other science fiction writers, so we keep coming back repeatedly to that well, with often some pretty awesome results. Um, so, on the one hand, Bradbury is rooting his thinking in science here, but on the other hand, he is very much sort of moving beyond that. Uh, Bradbury is kind of a very transitional science fiction writer in that sense. Um, as much as his early works are very much coming out at the same time as some of the great Golden Age writers, again, Asimov, Heinlein, Clark, etc., uh, Bradbury thinks differently from them. Uh, where most of Heinlein's early work especially involves, like, heroic men doing heroic things on other planets and being awesome and, you know, they're totally able to do whatever they, they want. Um, Bradbury tends to deconstruct this idea more often than not, and you'll notice that, especially in this first half of the novel, we get heroic men doing heroic deeds, coming to Mars, being the first people ever to set foot on this planet, and then horrible things happen to them, or they fall apart, or they fall to infighting. Like, Bradbury is very much looking at a lot of the science fiction and adventure serial tropes of, of the 1940s and 50s, and turning them on their head, very much questioning them, um, very much asking us to question ourselves for, you know, thinking about these worlds and these places in this way. Um, we expect certain things to happen when human beings set foot on a planet for the first time. And Bradbury very much plays with those expectations, interrogates those expectations, and leads us to some pretty dark conclusions as these things go. Um, but before we get into the expeditions to Mars, I want to start, as I usually do, with the epigraph. Um, this is maybe just included in my text, or, you know, again, like, the various editions of this book also vary pretty wildly. A lot of the stories 
in the Martian Chronicles have sort of come in and out at various publications, like uh, my edition doesn't have the fire balloons in it, um, but we'll talk about that when we talk about the Illustrated Man. Um, on the other hand, like my copy, I did have to go fairly far out of my way to find one, but I did find a copy that has way in the middle of the air in it, which is usually removed because of racism reasons, um, which we'll talk about in in its own time, like, once we get to the second half of the story next time. Um, but at any rate, the epigraph in the version that I've got is very typically Bradbury, and it is very much where I want to start in, in our discussion of just Bradbury generally. Um, namely, he writes, It is good to renew one's wonder, said the philosopher. Space travel has again made children of us all. This is a major theme that we're going to find in Bradbury all the time. Um, where science fiction typically sort of involves like strong men and women doing like awesome deeds on other worlds or, you know, sort of following science to its natural conclusion, Bradbury, you'll find, kind of focuses on children a lot more than he does, than, or many other science fiction writers tend to. Um, you'll find that many of Bradbury's stories revolve around the experiences of childhood, both here in the Martian Chronicles and especially in his short story collections like The Illustrated Man, and we will probably see it at its most when we read Something Wicked This Way Comes. Uh, but that is just a small like, cross-section of this sort of thing. Like, some of Bradbury's most stirring stories, like The Belt, or All Summer in a Day, um, or all the stories in Dandelion Wine, tend to revolve around childhood experience, and this idea of wonder, especially. Um, as much as, you know, many people have read The Martian Chronicles, many people have sort of examined it, one of the things that I want to emphasize in our particular look at this book is the way that it talks about and deals with wonder, um, both when it is not working and when it is. Um, and again, we're going to see this in Fahrenheit 451, we're going to see this in Something Wicked This Way Comes, everything we read by Bradbury will in some sense, revolve around this idea of wonder. Those characters that wonder tend to be our heroes, tend to be the ones that Bradbury positions himself behind, tends to be the people with the correct moral compass in some way. And those that don't are the ones that are dangerous and problematic for Bradbury, the ones who will ultimately either defeat themselves or be defeated by others. Um, so with that in mind, let's look at our first three expeditions. And on the one hand, I want to like, I want to stress that there is, there are occasionally some interesting things in the like interconnecting material here. Like the the opening story, if we can call it that, the opening vignette is Rocket Summer, which I find just so fitting for the for Bradbury's kind of introduction here, even if it doesn't connect to any of like the major stories that he's wrestling with. Um, so just. To look at that initial opening, this is page 13 of my 1976 edition. Um, one minute it was Ohio winter, with doors closed, windows locked, the panes blind with frost, icicles fringing every roof, children skiing on slopes, housewives lumbering like great black bears in their furs along the icy streets, and then a long wave of warmth crossed the small town, a flooding sea of hot air. It seemed as if someone had left a bakery door open. The heat pulsed 
among the cottages and bushes and children. The icicles dropped, shattering to melt. The doors flew open. The windows flew up. The children worked off their wool clothes. The housewives shed their bare disguises. The snow dissolved and showed last summer's ancient green lawns. Rocket summer. The words passed among the people in the open, airing houses. Rocket summer. The warm desert air changing the frost pattern on the windows, erasing the artwork. The skis and sleds suddenly useless. The snow falling from the cold sky upon the town turned to a hot rain before it touched the summer or before it touched the ground. This is pure Bradbury. Like, this is what I love about this writer. On the one hand, notice that we have this pastoral scene. It's a snow day. The kids are playing in the snow. The housewives are going back and forth in their great fur coats. Um, there's ice and snow everywhere. And the vivid, evocative details of this stuff, like almost poetry, the way that he describes the icicles, the snow, the, you know, windows flying open. Um, like, it's just these very vivid, very sensual details. And they are immediately thrown into this stark relief. The snow melts. Not because it's a heat wave, not because of natural causes. It's the middle of January, and all of the snow and ice melts because the rockets are taking off. Like, this is what Bradbury is kind of getting at when, we're, when he's talking about wonder here. This is what draws Bradbury to speculative fiction rather than, you know, Raymond Chandler or Raymond Carver-esque, like, suburban, you know, household, household stuff. Bradbury is fascinated by the possibilities that technology opens to us, by the opportunities for wonder and magic that is brought about by scientific advancement. Here we have a snowed-in town in the middle of winter, and then because of the rockets taking off, the temperature increases, the snow all melts in a moment, and everyone transforms from their winter clothes to their summer clothes. Their, the houses open their windows, the you know summer outfits all come off. But notice, too, that it is an act that is essentially destructive. This, like all the snow, all of the artwork of the ice on the windows, is in a moment wiped out. Like, the snow is killed here by this scientific advancement. And this idea of technology being both wondrous and amazing and awesome and world-changing and absolutely, totally transforming the lives of everybody who comes into contact with it, but also being destructive and dangerous and erasing great miracles in their own right, that's gonna be something that we run into a lot in this novel. Um, like, as much as this is just, you know, a handful of paragraphs sort of introducing the stories that are more richer and more detailed, this is thematically huge for this novel. This is appropriate as a sort of entrance into the world that Bradbury is creating for us. He is inclining us, he is informing us, this is what you need to look out for. Um, you need to get in a space where I am going to tell you about miracles, like wondrous, amazing, transformative miracles of science and technology, miracles of, you know, other races and other planets and other worlds, but we also need to recognize that the things that make these places miraculous are both precious and fragile.
and that the miracles of one culture may very well wipe out the miracles of another culture. The great achievements, this rocket summer, is something that is destructive to the natural course of events, which is itself miraculous and wonderful. That's where we're sort of introduced into this story based on, you know, again, this rather late written uh, little, like, vignette. But it very much informs everything that's going to happen from here on out. So in the first three expeditions, we're introduced to the Martians. Um, we start with this story, Gila, uh, which is very much weirdly a Raymond Carver-esque suburban story about suburban Martians. Um, and one of the things that I want to kind of emphasize about these first three major stories, again, we've got Gila, the, the, the first sort of expedition to Mars by humans. We've got the Earthmen, the second expedition to Mars, and then finally the third expedition itself before And the Moon Be Still as Bright, when it really takes, which I'm going to want to spend quite a bit of time on. That one, oh my gosh. Um, this is the story of the early colonization of Mars, the first trips that humans are making to the Red Planet. And importantly, especially starting with Yila and moving through the Earthmen to the Third Expedition, and then finally the and the Moon still be as bright, um, we're kind of introduced to the Martians before we are introduced to the humans. And there's a really interesting development here between these three early expedition stories. Namely, we start very much rooted in the Martian perspective, and then only gradually are we shown more and more of the human expeditions coming to the planet. With Gila especially, there literally are no humans in this story. Like, we never actually see them. The whole story here is that Gila is this Martian housewife, like, she has all of the responsibilities and duties of a typical housewife on Earth in the 1950s. Like, she's cleaning the house, she's responsible for preparing dinner, even though, like, almost all of this work has been automated. Um, apparently, they are living in this, like, magnificent, awesome, wonderful crystal house that, like, moves to follow the sun and used to be sitting on the edge of a sea, but the sea has now since been dried up. Um, the house, like, all she has to do to, like, clean the surfaces is she, like, spreads this kind of dust on the crystal surfaces and it picks up the dirt and carries it away. Like, food grows from the house's walls itself. Like, we are talking about the final iteration of the modern home as advertised in the 1950s, you know, like, magazines and stuff. This is technology to the point that it has reduced her responsibilities as a housewife to virtually nil, and yet she still is basically a housewife. Nothing has changed here. Either Bradbury lacks the imagination to sort of think of a completely different social circumstance from what the 1950s are, are offering him, or he's very deliberately showing us a parallel to her own sort of understanding of the world. Because Eula's relationship with her husband looks a lot like a 1950s husband and wife. She is you know, going about doing her housewifely duties, cleaning the house, taking care of the food. He sits in his armchair and reads a book. Like, a book that is awesome and amazing, and apparently, like, all he has to do is, like, touch the letters on the page and they make sounds, like, beautiful music in their own right. But this is essentially just another, like, 
hundreds of years in the future iteration of the man of the house comes home, kicks off his feet, picks up the newspaper, and is reading it while his wife does all of the housework. On the one hand, Bradbury is showing us something that is very unfamiliar, very alien. Um, technology beyond our wildest dreams. On the other hand, he's showing us something incredibly familiar, something banal, something totally within our realm of experience. Namely, a husband and wife who have been married for a long time and gotten very entrenched in their routines and who really do just fall into this stereotype, this pattern of behavior that no longer means anything to either of them. Because the sort of conflict here, the plot of this otherwise Raymond Carver-esque story, is that Yila is having dreams of this new person coming to Mars. These people who have pale skin and dark hair, who look nothing like the Martians that she and her husband are familiar with. She imagines, or dreams rather, of the first arrival of humans to Mars, which we're told that the two of them are telepathic. They don't need to actually, like, share words in, in these cases. And, you know, we're, we're very much introduced to the Martians as possessing this ability. The suggestion here is that she's not just dreaming. She's effectively dreaming the truth. She's dreaming about the future. Um, and as we see by the end of the story, this really does come to pass. This is you know, leading up to the moment when humans do in fact actually arrive on Mars. But the problem that's sort of developing here is that she tells her husband about it, and he doesn't want to hear about it. It makes him mad and jealous and bitter, um, to the point that when in fact these dreams are getting stronger and she feels compelled to go out and meet these humans as they arrive, he commands her to stay back at the house and goes out with his gun and shoots them. So, there's a couple things that we definitely need to talk about this setup as the first arrival of humans on Mars. First off, we got to talk about the Martian side. We're being shown a Martian culture that is defunct, that doesn't work anymore, that apparently has all of these wondrous inventions just surrounding them at all times, but they're taken completely for granted. They are totally ignored. The husband reads his newspaper, the wife cleans the house, they do not recognize how beautiful or wonderful, like there aren't any scenes of like people just looking out and admiring the view. Like again, this house was built on the side of a sea possibly thousands of years ago with the same family living in the same house all of that time. And yet, the sea isn't there anymore. Like, the view that used to exist has gone. The house is out of place in some sense. Like, it's easy to imagine this as, you know, comparable to some human lake house, which was really originally built at the edge of a lake because the, the view was beautiful and it was great, like, going out in the lake and, you know, you spend all your time with your friends out there and you have parties on the dock and, you know, maybe you take a boat around. Like, this is pure middle-class suburban bourgeois awesomeness. But here on Mars, all of that is gone. All of the reason for that is gone. The reason why the house is there has disappeared over the eons. The reasons that the people used to spend time in this place have vanished. And all that's left is a kind of routine without purpose. 
here we have a loveless marriage that is just convenient, that just works for them because that's all that they can imagine or think of. There's no wonder, in short. Like, to connect it back to this idea that Bradbury's sort of given us at the very beginning, the Martians have lost their sense of wonder. Or at least Gila and her husband certainly have, and as we see in the future expeditions, there really isn't any wonder left on Mars. This civilization has lost its reason for existing. It just continues to exist, out of habit. Not because there's any drive to make them explore or invent or create new things or find out new developments. Like, that is gone. And what's left in its place is just this empty complacency, uh, this inertia, treading water for literally hundreds and thousands of years. Um, by contrast, when the humans arrive, this is a big difference. This is a huge change, something new, something that revolutionizes stuff. And the humans here do seem to represent inventiveness, adventuring spirit, like ambition and a will to change and create and do new wonderful things. You know, where the Martians have lost their wonder, the humans are usually presented to us as though they are still surrounded by that wonder. They have been moved to explore new worlds in a way that the Martians have simply never reached or given up on, or who knows. Um, we are not given enough information about the Martians to know why their culture looks the way that it does, just that it does. And the Martians are apparently as disinterested in their own history as they are in the history of the humans who come visiting. But notice the Martians' reaction. In each of these stories, and perhaps most obviously in the way that Yila's husband responds, the humans are a nuisance. Um, he sees them as a threat to his domestic stability. So he goes out and he kills them, the way that he would kill a mouse that has gotten into the house, or the way that he would kill like a coyote who is keeping people up at night. Um, the humans do not present this wonderful world of possibility or, you know, an excited group of people, like, undertaking a grand adventure. To him, they are just a pest. They're getting in the way of his domestic tranquility. They're upsetting his wife and his stable, in, stable worldview. Which is tragic, especially for Yila. Like, notice that, again, as much as this is a story about Martians and humans, at the end of the day, this is also kind of a pretty stirring feminist story. Like, Bradbury shows us a person who does still wonder among the Martians, a woman who dreams, a woman who wants more than what her life is currently offering her, a woman who sees a way out of a stagnant life and a stagnant relationship. And the tragedy of the situation is that as much as it does move her, it drives her, it, wants, it makes her want things again, it is all very much cut off. Her culture refuses to admit that in some sense. In the same way that, you know, a woman in, like, Tudor England might be stuck at home when she wants to do more. Or the way that, you know, Jane Austen's protagonists dream of being more than just a housewife for some, you know, domineering husband. Um, she is a victim here. And as much as her husband is killing humans... He's killing her dreams, her ambition for something more than this dull, repetitive, constant life. Um, 
Now, we, we see that in the second expedition, the, the, the Earthmen, um, that there's more to it than that. That the Martians are not just lacking imagination. They, it's not that they've just purely outgrown it, that their civilization has sort of stagnated. There's actually reason to deny themselves imagination. Um, so in the Earthmen, we're positioned instead behind the, the expedition in this case. Like, the second expedition shows up on Mars, and they're like, hey, we're so excited to be here, there was an expedition that went before, but we never heard from them, so we assumed that something went wrong, and that they never actually landed. Um, but here we are, second expedition, whole bunch of people, all on Mars, we're so excited to be here, like... Where's the party? Where's the, the parades, the, the big band, the welcoming, the, you know, all the stuff that you would expect from, like, you know, in, again, in 1950s America, like, everybody getting the bandstand out, and, you know, here comes the president in, through our small town, so we're going to, like, really just paint the town red for him. You know, we want to be celebrated, in short. Here is this momentous thing that has happened. We have crossed the spaces between the stars, and here we are, the first humans ever to set foot on Mars. And the Martians react by trying to get rid of them. Oh, uh, you should probably talk to this other person. And then they go to the other person. And he's like, what? They sent me to you? Or they sent you to me? Like, oh, I can't believe that they did that. So why don't you go talk to such and such? And they get, like, kicked around for, you know, the duration of the story. Like, they get kicked from one person to another. And all of these Martians seem completely unimpressed by this astonishing, remarkable, landmark, like, history of human achievement sort of milestone. You know, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, but multiplied by a hundred. And here they are, and they're, like, getting passed around like they're, they showed up at the wrong time or something, and everyone is just too inconvenienced. On the one hand, we should definitely connect this to the issue that we saw with Ela and her husband, namely a lack of imagination, a lack of wonder. Um, we're not impressed by this huge achievement of these humans. Like, oh, somebody else has randomly showed up on our planet, like, big deal. But then we're shown why. Namely, they get sort of passed on to the last person, and it turns out that the people who are excited to see them, who are excited that they're there, are the insane Martians, who also believe that they are, in fact travelers from another world, or the first visitors to an unknown planet. And again, because the Martians are telepaths, apparently these delusions, these, you know, these manifestations of their insanity, the images that they conjure up to justify their insanity, can in fact be sort of like projected into the minds of these other Martians. So imagination, delusion, is actually dangerous, is socially problematic for these Martians. Um, if an insane person comes to your door and says, hey, I am a human being from the planet Earth, and I have just landed on this planet, will you take me in and like feed me and celebrate my being here and stuff? This is actually routine to most of the Martians. Like, crazy people happen in Martian culture. Um, and on the one hand, we should read this as, okay, so once again, the Martians lack wonder. Once again, Bradbury is showing us that these Martians very much cannot appreciate this radical change of the status quo. And the best that they can come up with is that this is a delusion. 
Like, this is literally what the psychologist ultimately comes up with. Like, he's very impressed by the delusion. He's like, wow, you've successfully manifested, like, all of this stuff, and it's both physical, and, it, like, you even have a smell, and, you know, you've, you've covered all the bases. And then he shows them the rocket, and he's like, wow, this is a really impressive, you know, delusion. This is a really impressive feat of imagination. Like, you are one sophisticated crazy person, in short. Like, you have successfully made your delusion so realistic that I can't even tell, you know, I can't spot the inconsistencies in your reality. So he kills them. Like, he kills each member, first the guy who he thinks is, like, the one who is having the delusion, and you know, the rest of his crew is pr presumably part of the delusion, but then he after killing them, realizes that the other three people aren't disappearing, so he kills them as well, just in case, like, he had it wrong and one of them were doing the delusion, or maybe there was a group delusion, who knows. But then after they're all dead, he's like, oh crap, I still see the bodies, and I still see the rocket, so apparently I am also deluded, and he kills himself as well. On the one hand, again, we should read this as a lack of imagination, a lack of wonder. The Martians have developed a society that is now so stagnant that they cannot admit of something this remarkable occurring. But on the other hand, we should also recognize that this is a defense mechanism, that the Martian society can't afford wonder in some sense. Like, as much as this story is kind of darkly comic, satirical, again, deconstructing that initial, you know, here we are, the great human adventurers, here on this new planet, wild, you know, boldly going where no man has gone before, like by all means, celebrate our epic, heroic achievement, and the response is, eh, you are all insane and we don't believe that you're actually here. On the other hand, we should notice that for the Martians, having wonder, having imagination, is a liability. It's something that can infect people. And this, I wonder if Bradbury isn't actually questioning this principle of wonder as this really important, like, mode of thinking that he tends to, you know, harp on a lot. Like, as a writer, as a person who, you know, himself manifests his imaginations, manifests his own, quote, delusions, and then shares them with other people in the form of these stories, in the form of these books, I wonder if Bradbury isn't actually questioning his own power, wondering if there's a danger to it. Because, at the end of the day, there is. Like, and Bradbury will talk about this. Again, you know, just as the, the power and majesty of the rockets wipes out the winter world, you know, all of the delicate tracery of the, the frost on the windows, Bradbury may very well be acknowledging he has a destructive power as well. His art can cause people to do bad things, in some sense. Um, his delusion shared by others could potentially ruin them in some way. It's not an idea he explores very often. Usually he's just like charging forward, eyes wide, childlike in his, you know, admiration for these invented things that he's come up with. This story doesn't dwell on it very much, typically just ends with that you know, very sort of satirical, very reversal, very deconstructive, like downbeat note, but it does make you wonder. Uh, the third story is classic Bradbury. Like, we're going to see a few of these, and it is just pure deconstruction top to bottom. 
Third expedition shows up. It's considerably bigger than the expeditions that have gone before. At this point, we are squarely positioned behind the humans. No longer are we sort of invited or encouraged to see the Martian culture as as it exists in itself. Instead, the humans land on this planet, and they are greeted by home. Like, paradise. Heaven. All of the people who have died in their life, all the people that they miss, are there to greet them, and there's this beautiful town that reminds them of the place where they grew up, and they come into this town, and they are, you know, welcomed by all of these people, and they lay down in these beds, like, ready to go to sleep for the first time, and the captain suddenly realizes that if, in fact... There, was, there were Martians on this planet, and they wanted to goad these humans into a false sense of security. Projecting a perfect world would be just the way to do that. And he gets up, runs for the door, and never makes it. The implication here being that every one of the crew is murdered by the Martians. That the Martians systematically kill all of the humans. Which leads to a fairly interesting progression here. On the one hand, we start with the Martians being virtually unaware of the existence of these humans. Eula's um, husband goes out and kills them. He doesn't tell anybody about it. Like, this is not, you know, some grand, like, huge occurrence. No, no newspapers and Mars print this, this story. It happens totally without anybody's knowledge. And he's not going to talk about it because, again, he is very closed and very private and doesn't want this interfering with his, you know, normal, boring, everyday life. In the second case, you get the idea that this could become a scandal. Um, because we've got these humans walking from town, from house to house, um, we, you, you do get multiple Martians interacting with them, even if they don't believe that these humans are, in fact, humans. Um... But what's more, we're told at the very end of that story, the Earthmen, that the rocket is dismantled because they don't know what it is. Um, the last sort of couple of paragraphs, the rocket reclined on the little sunny hill and didn't vanish. When the town people found the rocket at sunset, they wondered what it was. Nobody knew, so it was sold to a junk man and hauled off to be broken up for scrap metal. The ne that night it rained all night, the next day was fair and warm. Again... There's the suggestion that, on the one hand, the Martians do sort of interact with humans in a way, but they don't take it seriously, and again, it passes without a trace. Which makes it kind of weird that the third story, in the third story, the Martians are totally prepared. They come in with a plan. And we never actually see the Martians as Martians. Like, the closest we get is, you know, apparently they are projecting this delusion to the humans of their own desires back at them. And then we see this really grim reminder on the, on the day after they're all murdered with, like, the band comes out and actually plays the, the Columbia, the gem of the ocean. And it's just haunting because it's like, here is this... Here is this fiction that the Martians have set up as a trap for the human beings that persists and, like, goes on in spite of the, the humans no longer being alive. Like, they basically perform this whole funeral ceremony. It's really weird and really dark. Um, but it also sort of leads us to this place where we're kind of wondering, is this even a Martian trick? Like... Seeing as what ultimately happens here, like as we're, we're as is revealed in the next story, and the moon be still as bright, the Martians have all died off. 
uh, by the time that the fourth expedition reach, reaches Mars. They've all been killed by chickenpox, which there's definitely some some stuff that Bradbury is, like, touching on here. On the one hand, it is really obvious to see the connection between, you know, the Martians being wiped out by chickenpox and the Native Americans being wiped out by smallpox upon the sort of, like, entrance of, of European settlers and colonizers and, like, the, the conquistadors and, you know, the British colonies and all that stuff. On the one hand, it's really hard not to see that parallel. The, the two diseases are too similar. On the other hand, it's really hard not to think of, like, H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds and how the Martians invade Earth and they're getting ready to wreck everything and, you know, nothing can stop them. And then germs, like, they succumb to normal, boring human diseases like the common cold. Bradbury is very much taking both of these ideas and sort of twisting them into one sort of disease, one outcome. And this outcome wipes out the Martians. Um, the question then becomes, when did it wipe out the Martians? Was it before or after the third expedition arrived? Because based on what we've seen of Martian like physiology, the telepathy that they've got, it could be very easy for the Martians to dress up, disguise themselves as these people, project this fiction into the minds of the, of the humans who come, in which case, this whole thing is an elaborately constructed setup by the Martians to trap this third expedition, which for some reason they can anticipate, even though the second story doesn't suggest it. On the other hand, it's possible that this whole thing is automated. That, you know, we've seen the, the Martian technology be so sophisticated, like houses just producing food of their own accord. Um, we'll get a sort of reminder of this later when we see the, the human sort of civilization continuing to be automated, like long after the humans have left. Um, it could be that this is an automatic trap set for them in the past. Now, some of this is probably better explained by, hey, this was a short story that was written long before. It was like fabricated into a coherent novel or narrative. Um, like, Bradbury apparently just had numerous stories about Martians totally not being impressed and possibly occasionally wiping out any humans who arrived. Like, there's, again, that impulse to deconstruction seems to be the first and foremost, uh, like, theme and, and idea that Bradbury is playing with here. Um, so it kind of is okay that this story doesn't fit with the others, that honestly all three of them don't fit. The, the Martian naming conventions change radically between Yila and the Earthmen. Um, there's no justification for why the Martians are prepared for the Earth the third expedition, even though they clearly have this elaborate trap set up. Um, what we should definitely take away is that the Martians don't want the humans here. That this, in, this you know, incursion upon their status quo is a violation of what they believe. And we very much see why in the next story. Uh, and the moon be still as bright. I feel like this is the key to interpreting the first half of this of this book. Like this is the story that is kind of front and center for Bradbury um, of all of these stories. And maybe that's just my imagination. Maybe it's just me like resonating with this story as deeply as I did, especially this week. Um, but this, I feel like, along with you know the later stories, the the night meeting, especially, sort of decodes the the relationship between the humans and the Martians here. And this is a complicated story. Like, there's a lot of emotions going on here. There's a lot of thematic weight to what's happening. 
the setup is as follows. Um, so we once again have another expedition to Mars. It's the fourth one, and this one is apparently all or nothing. Like, we're told right from the outset by, you know, the captain talking with the crew and with Spender especially, that, like, humans have already spent way too much money on this crap. They're already getting tired of sending expeditions to Mars that do not have anyone, you know, like, ha have any sort of response. Um, we can't afford to keep doing this. We're sending out the best possible team in this case. Like, we're told that all of these people are hyper-competent, there are redundancies, like, everyone has two jobs because, you know, we're, we're making sure that, like, every responsibility on the rocket and on Mars can be fulfilled. Um, we've got the biggest team we've seen so far. Like, we start with only one or two guys in Gila, and then we've got, like, four in the Earthmen, and then we've got a whole bunch um, in the, the third expedition. Now we've got, like, dozens, it seems. A whole team of people. Um, and they land on Mars, and unlike the stories that have gone before, they're greeted by nothing. And again, this kind of serves as a deconstruction. Like, once again, we're sort of invited to think of this big, exciting expedition that all humanity is weighing their hopes on, and it is very anticlimactic. You know, there's no welcoming party, there's no brass band like the Earthmen were expecting. There's no there's not even an elaborate trap the way that we saw with the third expedition. Like, this is of zero consequence and there is no reaction to it. But the reason why we find out is because all the Martians are already dead. They've all been wiped out. Like, a couple of the, the sort of, like, splinter groups who go exploring come back from the cities to discover that most of the cities, importantly, have been abandoned for millennia. Like, thousands of years, these cities have stood there empty. So, again, we're sort of invited to think of the Martians as a, a civilization in decline. Just like we saw with Yila, just like we saw with their grand house on the edge of a sea that no longer exists... We see these cities that have been abandoned for thousands of years, that, like, nobody has lived there for as long as humans have been a thing. But for those cities that did have people in it, like, one out of four cities does have people, and they're all recently dead bodies covered in chickenpox. What was left of the Martian civilization was wiped out by the human disease communicated by the earlier expeditions. The humans have unwittingly killed the Martians. And again, we're shown that same theme, our technological development, wondrous and miraculous as it may be, as much as it is great to imagine these rockets like transforming the landscape, their transformation is frequently destructive. Humans did not mean to wipe out the Martians. This is not like... You know, this is not 100% similar to the, the imperialism of America by European settlers. Like, we didn't, we didn't actually want to kill the Martians. We wanted to meet them. We wanted to have a conversation with them. We wanted to have a di diplomatic relationship with them. But because we did not protect ourselves, and because the Martians, apparently, for all their scientific advancement, it is all stagnant and in the past, and therefore they're not able to react to this new plague that is striking them, and because they left no humans alive to help them deal with it, they're wiped out. The Martians are killed by a combination of human hubris and their own hubris, by a combination of their total indifference to scientific advancement and their total inability to react to change, 
and this radical change, uninvited, unasked for, coming from the human expeditions that uh, look over the planet. There's a tragedy to this. It's a tragedy that is reasonable, like there is to some degree justice in the, this horrible thing that has happened, but at the same time it remains tragic. And this is kind of the whole point of this story, because on the one hand we have Spender. Spender is an archaeologist. He is the guy who is coming to Mars to study the Martians themselves. He is well-versed in linguistics and other languages. He is well-versed in the technology necessary to sort of like dig up and examine these ancient cultures. He is our anthropologist. He is our archaeologist. He is our historian. And Bradbury very much situates us for most of the story behind Spender. We are meant to empathize with him. We are meant to feel what he feels as he walks through these ancient cities and sees these wondrous devices that the Martians have come up with, this culture that is beautiful and content, and it's complicated. So let's talk about this. Um, so Captain Wilder and his crew land on the planet only to discover that it's empty that it's totally abandoned, that everyone is dead, and that the humans are responsible for this. And there is a grimness about this news. But this grimness is very much pitted against the natural inclination of the crew to celebrate the thing that they have accomplished. Remember, again, all of the crews that we've seen land on Mars so far have been inclined to do this, want to celebrate their achievement, are excited about this monumental task that they've accomplished, sailing through the stars across, you know, the, the endless, you know, miles of space from Earth to Mars. This is a grand, awesome achievement, and they are seeking some kind of recognition for it. And where the first three expeditions get their recognition, you know, frustrated, and usually they are killed before they have a chance to really, like, react to this. Here, the fourth expedition is left with literally nothing. There's no fight. There's no diversion. There's no bopping around from Martian to Martian trying to find someone who's going to give them the key to the city. We have nothing of that. And this anticlimax leads the crew to sort of celebrate it themselves. They throw a party. You know, Whitey brings out his harmonica, and he's playing, but it kind of gets ruined by the dust that's passing through. Biggs, especially, becomes the character who sort of represents this behavior. He's the one who gets, like, flying drunk and, and starts singing, and he's making a whole bunch of noise. And On the one hand, we're presented with these two sorts of factions. Spender, on the one hand, is reverent. He realizes that they have come to this planet as invaders, whether they intended to or not. And they are now on this hallowed ground. He emphasizes to the captain that it is sort of in human nature to ruin these things. And Spender is very much in wonder, in awe, of the culture has gone, that has gone before. He emphasizes that, you know, there's a destructive act in just being here in some sense. Uh, this is page 73 that he talked, that he uses this particular quote. It is crazy powerful. So, ask me then, he says, if I believe in the spirit of the things as they were used, and I'll say yes. They're all here. All the things which had uses. All the mountains which had names. And we'll never be able to use them without feeling uncomfortable. And somehow the mountains will never sound right to us. 
We'll give them new names, but the old names are there, somewhere in time, and the mountains were shaped and seen under those names. The names we'll give to the canals and mountains and cities will fall like so much water on the back of a mallard. No matter how we touch Mars, we'll never touch it. And then we'll get mad at it. And you know what we'll do? We'll rip it up, rip the skin off, and change it to fit ourselves. We won't ruin Mars, said the captain. It's too big and too good. You think not? We Earthmen have a talent for ruining big, beautiful things. The only reason we didn't set up hot dog stands in the midst of the Egyptian temple of Karnak is because it was out of the way and served no large commercial purpose. And Egypt is a small part of Earth. But here? This whole thing is ancient and different, and we have to set down somewhere and start fouling it up. We'll call the canal the Rockefeller Canal, and the mountain King George Mountain, and the sea the DuPont Sea, and there'll be Roosevelt and Lincoln and Coolidge cities, and it won't ever be right when there are the proper names for these places. That'll be your job as archaeologists to find out the old names and we'll use them. A few men like us against all the commercial interests, Spender responds. Spender looked at the Iron Mountains. They know we're here tonight to spit in their wine, and I imagine they hate us. Spender feels wonder. And Honestly, like, part of the reason why this story means so much to me personally is because I feel his pain there. Like, I absolutely acknowledge and respond to his desire to respect and admire these ancient cultures, to respond to their perspective on the humans bumping into their stuff, banging around their cities, walking over their fields, trying to rename their mountains, defiling their sacred sites. Like, the clearest example of this is they, they go into one of the, the Martian cities, and the captain and Spender are in awe of this city with its beautiful rising crystal towers and all of these awesome, you know, technological developments that they have. And they've got this beautiful mosaic laid into the floor showing all of these animals that these, that the humans could never have imagined and the Martians themselves. And they're inspired. Like the captain and Spender especially are moved by this beauty to the point that Spender talks about Lord Byron and this poem that Byron had written. And the captain asks him, Spender, do you, how does that poem go? And Spender recites it and gives us the name of the story in the process. So we'll go no more roving so late into the night, though the heart be still as loathing and the moon be still as bright. For the sword outwears the sheath and the soul wears out the breast, and the heart must pause to breathe and love itself must rest. Though the night was made for loving and the day returns too soon, yet we'll go no more roving by the light of the moon. Spender feels the disappearance of the Martians, the recognition that their cities have outlasted the civilization that built them, that the Martians themselves ran out of steam, ran out of wonder, stopped moving into the stars. You know, Byron is expressing this sort of fundamental human desire to move, to do stuff, to take over things, to change the world that they find. And what Byron is suggesting, or how Spender reads Byron here, is to sort of recognize that the Martians ran out of steam on that front. They built these incredible accomplishments, but no longer had the will to build something new. They had achieved as much as they ever wanted to achieve, and then they stopped. And both the captain and Spender see this dead beauty, 
this beauty that has outlived the race that created it, and they're stopped in their tracks by it. They feel this sort of reverent awe, this wonder. It's almost a religious experience in some sense. You know, here you are in this, what could very well have been a temple that the Martians created to a god that humans will never know in the same way that they named mountains and we will never know their proper names or they you know created a beautiful world and like took over all of these vast fields or named these cities and the names we give them will never be right and spender notes that there's a hostility there that this world doesn't want them there it had its own name it had its own identity it had a reason for existence and we are going to impose some different meaning some meaning that we want it to have and it won't be right, and the planet will fight us for it. But at the same time, Spender sees that we are a destructive force in our own right. So here, after they recite this poem, we're told, without a word, the Earthmen stood in the center of the city. It was a clear night. There was not a sound except the wind. At their feet lay a tile court worked into the shapes of ancient animals and peoples. They looked down upon it. We have this moment where they take it in, where they've heard the poem, the last words are still echoing in the halls, and they just pause reverently, respectfully, trying to appreciate what this culture was trying to say in creating this world. But then it's interrupted. Biggs made a sick noise in his throat. His eyes were dull. His hands went to his mouth. He choked, shut his eyes, bent, and a thick rush of fluid filled his mouth, spilled out, fell to splash on the tiles covering the designs. Biggs did this twice. A sharp, whiny stench filled the cool air. No one moved to help Biggs. He went on being sick. Spender stared for a moment, then turned and walked off into the avenues of the city, alone in the moonlight. Never once did he pause to look back at the gathered men there. On the one hand, Spender and the captain as well feel this awe, feel this momentous, reverent compassion for the civilization that rose and died here. A civilization that, in some sense, had outlived itself, that had gone beyond lived beyond its own ambitions and therefore couldn't adapt to the changing circumstances that they found themselves in. They fell, like the Romans or the Aztecs or any number of other civilizations that have passed on Earth. And Spender feels for them, admires the beauty of this lost race. But Biggs, in all of his celebrations, all of his excitement, all of his want to sort of commemorate his new accomplishment, all the drinking that he's been doing, and the celebrating, and the music, and so on, as much as every time they try to celebrate, the Martian wilderness kind of stops it in its tracks, halts the harmonica, you know, keeps people from singing, like, causes all of these people to sort of almost forcibly reflect and think about their alienness here. Biggs insists, I will celebrate nonetheless, and in this moment, it comes back to him. Like, he throws up all over the beautiful mosaic floor. And Spender can't deal with this. The two impulses here, the impulse to revere and to wonder and to respect, and the impulse to make it our own, 
to turn it human, to rename all of the cities, rename all of the canals, rename the mountains, even though they're not the proper names, comes in a very stark contrast here. Spender cannot let the bigses of this expedition ruin this beautiful Martian place. And so he retaliates. Like, he finds Biggs all dressed up in a Martian outfit. He declares himself to be the last Martian, and he kills Biggs. He shoots him, and he drops him into the canal, and Biggs just floats away. This is complicated. Because on the one hand, I have to imagine that Bradbury is standing with Spender here. That moment as Biggs vomits all over the beautiful Martian tile work has got to be so offensive to not just Spender and, and the captain, but to Bradbury himself. Bradbury was disgusted by a lot of the sort of casual human indifference to beauty and to artwork and to admiration. We'll see this again in the works of Fahrenheit 451 and The Illustrated Man. Like, humans who do not respect the world and the beauty around them tend to get punished by Bradbury. But notice that Biggs isn't necessarily culpable. He's not guilty. He's just stupid. He's not appreciating. He's not reverent. He's not, you know, recognizing the, the history of this place, the, the beauty of this place. But he doesn't deserve to die. And Spender, in murdering him, goes a step too far. And this is made painfully clear when Spender starts killing other people. Like, he shows up to the encampment, and there are, like, three or four other guys standing around just, you know, talking, not doing anything particularly irreverent here, um, just sort of, like, hanging out and, and talking about things. And one of the characters that we're introduced to at this point is a guy named Cherokee, who apparently has Cherokee ancestry. Like, he is, you know, an inheritor of another dead race, in a sense. And Bradbury is making a very clear connection here. Like, he is very clearly comparing, you know, the culture of the Martians to the culture of Native Americans. In both cases, wiped out by carelessness, by white people showing up, spreading their disease unwittingly, and then just desecrating their holy sites, desecrating their landmarks. Like, the parallel is very clear here. But importantly, Cherokee doesn't take Spender's side. Like, Spender comes into the encampment and, you know, everyone greets him. Hey, Spender, long time no see. You know, Cookie says, you and them goddamn ruins. You're like a dog in a boneyard. He makes fun of him for wanting to spend time in these, in these Martian settlements and, and sort of respecting this Martian culture. Um, now, Spender, at this point, he is constructing this new identity. He is trying to justify his actions as though he is the inheritor of a last Martian. And he even tries to justify this to the people there. He says, maybe I've been finding out things. What would you say if I had said I'd found a Martian prowling around? And they all sort of freeze. Did you? Where? Never mind. Let me ask you a question. How would you feel if you were a Martian and people came to your land and started tearing it up? Spender puts this on the other foot. Like, he in inquires, he makes this question to sort of challenge these people who have come to this planet and like, messed up all, all of their stuff, and he asks them, okay, how would you feel if you were the Martians, if you built these sacred landmarks or these beautiful cities, and then somebody showed up and started vomiting all over the floor? 
And Chirok responds, I know exactly how I feel. I've got some Cherokee blood in me. My grandfather told me lots of things about Oklahoma Territory. If there's a Martian around, I'm all for him. So here we're presented with a character who does know the experience, who has had his culture erased, who has been on the other side of this situation, who has watched, you know, imperialists and colonizers show up and wreck their ancestry, like destroy their beautiful cities and sites and religious centers, who have desecrated their home in the same way that Biggs desecrated the Martian, like, tile work. So Chirot gets it. And Spender initially sees him as an ally. What about you other men? asked Spender carefully. Nobody answered. Their silence was talk enough. Catch as catch can, finders keepers, if the other fellow turns his cheek, slap it hard, etc. Well, said Spender, I've found the Martian. The men squinted at him. Up in a dead town. I didn't think I'd find him. I didn't intend looking him up. I didn't, don't know what he was doing there. I've been living in a little valley town for about a week, learning how to read the ancient books and looking at their old art forms. And one day, I saw this Martian. He stood there for a moment, and then he was gone. He didn't come back for another day. I sat around, learning how to read the old writing, and the Martian came back, each time a little nearer, until on the day I learned how to decipher the Martian language, it's amazingly simple, and there are pictographs to help you, the Martian appeared before me and said, Give me your boots. And I gave him my boots. And he said, give me your uniform and all the rest of your apparel. And I gave him all of that. And then he said, give me your gun. And I gave him my gun. Then he said, now come along and watch what happens. And the Martian walked down into camp, and he's here now. Spender justifies his behavior as though he has become a Martian. As though he now understands their culture, recognizes the richness of Martian society, and now must, as a consequence, act as the defender of this culture. He has become a Martian, in his own words here. But notice, too, that his justification presents an alternative explanation for what is happening at this very moment. When he is, says this, coming into the campment with the intention of killing everyone he disagrees with, he justifies it to himself as, I am not doing this for myself, I am doing this as the last inheritor of the Martian society. As this person who now is responsible for this dead civilization, this lost culture. And notice that it's Chirok who responds, I don't see any Martian." I'm sorry, Spender says. Spender took out his gun. It hummed softly. The first bullet got the man on the left. The second and third bullets took the men on the right and in the center of the table. Cookie turned in horror from the fire to receive the fourth bullet. He fell back into the fire and lay there while his clothes caught fire. The rocket lay in the sun. Three men sat at breakfast, their hands on the table, not moving, their food getting cold in front of them. Chirok, untouched, sat alone, staring in numb disbelief at Spender. You can come with me, said Spender. Chirok said nothing. You can be with me on this, Spender waited. Finally, Chirok was able to speak. You killed them, he said, daring to look at the men around him. They deserved it. You're crazy. Maybe I am. But you can come with me. Come with you for what, said Chirok, the color gone out from his face, his eyes watering. Go on, get out! Spender's face hardened. Of all of them, I thought you would understand. Get out! Chirok reached for his gun. Spender fired one last time. Chirok stopped moving. 
On the one hand, I have to imagine that Bradbury is positioned behind Spender on this one. We're given too many scenes where Spender's feeling of horror at the activities of his crewmates are made viscerally real to us. That scene where Biggs vomits all over this beautiful tile floor that the Martians have, have created is painful in the same way that it is painful to Spender. But when Spender is confronted with someone who really does have the same experience, Chirok, who does know what it feels like to have his culture erased, to be a part of a civilization that has been destroyed by carelessness, by hatred, by anger, by just savagery, to be perfectly blunt about it, notice that Chirok sees this is appropriation. Spender is not salvaging the Martian society, he has adopted it, and he very well might be corrupting it. If, in fact, the Martians were as, you know, wonderful and benevolent and at peace with their, you know, natural surroundings as Spender seems to think is the case, as Spender emphasizes elsewhere, then what the fuck is he doing killing people? Like, why... How can Spender justify this behavior as a Martian when he only understands the Martian society so much? When he's only read a few books? When he's only been on this planet for a few days? On the one hand... Chirok does sympathize. He says, if there's a Martian, I'm all for him. But I don't see one. You are not him. You are pretending to be him. You have deluded yourself into being him. And I say this knowing full well that I am guilty of Spender's crime. That I, too, frequently put myself in the boots of, you know, the ancient Greeks and their lost society, or the ancient Romans, or the medieval Europeans, or the medieval, you know, Arabs, or any number of, you know, now lost to history societies, or societies that have been radically changed. You know, in this context, on this podcast, I have apologized for the 19th century Russians in the wake of, you know, the Ukrainian crisis. And I have talked about, you know, the failings of the Greek culture, but also what we can learn from that. And, you know, how tragic and awful it is to me that all of our textbooks have done without the, the Islamic world. Like, in some sense, when I say these things, I am putting myself in their shoes. I am trying to hold up these cultures because... I don't want to lose them, the same way that Spender doesn't want to lose them. But the line that Bradbury draws here is a really important one. He is very much emphasizing that, yes, we should admire these beautiful works, admire these lost cultures, learn what we can from them, but we can't ever mistake ourselves for them. We can't ever take them as being ours. And that's a complicated idea to get across here, one that troubles me even now. Like, this story very much resonated with me and left me with a lot of questions. Because at the end of the day, Spender is a villain here. You know, the captain is the one who provides our moral center. When, in fact, Spender decides to start murdering people, he goes a step too far. It's not his job to do that. And he's right. Like, he's right that the humans are going to destroy this world. We're going to see in the pages to come, yes, they are going to 
pave over all of these beautiful crystalline Martian cities and replace them with parking lots and food stands. And yes, given the chance, it, they would pave over the pyramids and put a hot dog stand in their place. The commercialization of these beautiful antiquated sites is a real and present danger to everything that they stand for. You know, you've got a 2006 epic movie version of Troy that totally does away with half of the significance and meaning and just perverts what the Greeks want. Like, this is absolutely true, and Spender is right to warn us away from it. In the same way that we shouldn't be, you know, turning these stories of the 1001 Nights into Disney movies. In the way that we, you know, absolutely shouldn't have theme park rides built around the, the ancient cultures that we, you know, regularly ignore or misinterpret or defile. But it's not worth killing people. There is a line here. And we cannot stand in the place of the people who have gone and say that we are their legacy. We are their standard bearers. We are the people who carry on their lives. Because we only understand them to a certain degree. Spender is an archaeologist. He's not an original Martian. And he cannot claim that title for himself. He goes too far when he does. As much as Spender does wonder at these Martians, when he says, I am one of them, he stops. Or rather, does not wonder enough. He commits an act of hubris, in short. An act of too much pride. I understand the Martians so well that I can call myself one of them. No, he can't. And it's not his job to avenge them or to fight for them. It's his job to admire them, to protect them as much as possible, yes, but not to turn this into murder and violence. And I'm hard-pressed to make that argument. Like, some part of me agrees with Spencer. Yes, the right move here is to wipe out all the humans, prevent more, you know, expeditions from coming and wrecking the place, preserve these landmarks and civilizations as much as we possibly can before the humans show up and wreck the place. And on some level, I know that the captain is the one we're supposed to recognize as the hero of this story. The captain who meets with Spender, who understands his position, who recognizes where he's coming from, and also recognizes that he's right, that like all of the commercial forces are in fact going to ruin this planet, that we're going to get mad at Mars and tear it up. And at the same time, as the captain is torn, like, he is a representative of humans. He knows he's a representative of humans. He doesn't go that extra step and call himself a Martian a step too far. He knows that he has to defend his crew. That he has to, at the end of the day, fight Spender. And he argues that Spender is noble. There is an error in his reason. He has made a mistake, and a mistake that will cause him to die. The captain needs to kill him and the crew needs to go along with him in killing him. But he wants it to be a clean death. Through the chest, he emphasizes. And he gives him to the last moment. Like the crew is coming up the mountain, they're getting ready to kill him. The captain waits. He's got a clear shot, this crevice between the rocks. He can get a clear shot right in the chest. And he waits, and he waits, and when it's clear that there is no choice, that death will follow, he shoots Spender right through the chest, clean death. And notice, too, that the last word here is the captain taking Spender's side. You know, Biggs is dead, admittedly, but we have this other guy, Park Hill, who is apparently, like, 
shooting out the towers and windows of the Martian city for target practice. The next afternoon, Parkhill Park did some target practice in one of the dead cities, shooting out the crystal windows and blowing the tops off the fragile towers. The captain caught Parkhill and knocked his teeth out. That's the line. The captain needs to make it abundantly clear. He is in charge of these people, not Spender. This is an important distinction. He is also responsible for their well-being. The captain does what he needs to do. He will not tolerate just wanton defilement of this beautiful place on his watch. Park Hill is doing that, so he knocks his teeth out. He implements discipline. That is his job. But he's not killing them. And it is, at the end of the day, also his job to usher in the future generations of humans that are going to come to this place and ruin it. And in the successive stories after this, we see that ruination really start to begin. Like, it is appropriately apt and bitter that the next story we see, the humans sort of like changing all the world around us, is in the green morning. We have this guy who lands on Mars and is unable to breathe. The air is too weak here. Like, we have kind of been running on a pretty big, like, scientific jump here. The, the Martian landscape is, in fact... Like, it does in fact have an oxygen atmosphere, it's just not nearly as oxygen-rich as the, like, Earth that these people came from. Um, so all of these people have been talking and, you know, acting and doing stuff without helmets, like they don't need them on, on Martian uh, soil. Um, but at the same time, apparently some people come to Mars and they can't breathe when they get here. Um, this is one of the newer stories, by the way, like this was first incorporated into the Martian Chronicles, so this is original material, this is, you know, new stuff that Bradbury is adding, but it is different from a lot of the transitional works insofar as it is self-contained. Uh, but it does connect the stories that we've talked about up until this point, the, the, you know, expedition stories, the humans coming to Mars stories, with the stories that are to come, the stories about the humans on Mars, colonizing the place, you know, twisting it and changing it to make it their own. And here we have, you know, our, our character, Benjamin Driscoll, who basically names himself Johnny Appleseed. He's going to, rather than, like, give up and, and go back to Earth, he's going to change the face of Mars to be more oxygen-rich. He's going to plant trees. So he does. And he walks, and he plants all these trees, and then he goes to sleep that, that night, and it starts to rain. And when he wakes up the next morning, all the trees have grown overnight, and are still growing, and are now dropping their own seeds and planting new trees. And this is, again, bringing us right back to that, you know, rocket summer opening. Here we have this world that is fantastic, magical, miraculous, wonderful. We plant these seeds, and miraculously overnight, all of these trees spring up. And at the one, on the one hand, Driscoll, our Johnny Appleseed character, is astonished that his work has been rewarded in this way. Like, he would have been ecstatic just to see a couple of sprouts grow up. The reason why he isn't willing to turn around is because he doesn't want to be dissuaded by the fact that nothing has happened, although that's what he expects. You know, it takes time for trees to grow, but here it doesn't. So he wakes up, and it is a green morning. And new oxygen just immediately, like overwhelms him, floods into the cities nearby. But the implication here is powerful, because in changing Mars to suit him, in making Mars more human-friendly, 
it's immediately gotten out of control. It's already done way more than he expected, and now it's uncontrolled. The trees are growing too fast. And just as, you know, Spender warned us that we were going to change the face of Mars, rip it up, we didn't anticipate that this would have this much of an effect. We don't know what sort of destructive secondary consequences will come as a result of this. Like, all of those Martian crystal cities seem to have a certain fragility about them. And Spender was hoping that they'd be able to conduct these archaeological investigations, salvage and, you know, keep as much as we could. Like, he begs the captain, let the archaeologists have a few years first before the colonizers, before the corporations, before the settlers, before the people who come and plant trees and totally, radically change the landscape, bring about this invasive species that will undoubtedly destroy those Martian cities because it's apparently too abundant to be allowed to exist. We change Mars, in short. This beautiful, wonderful technology, this grand feat of human accomplishment, this epic, you know, travel across the stars is also something that cannot be undone. Mars will never be the same. We have, in fact, torn it up, made it anew in our own image. And at the same time as this Martian landscape is alien and foreign and too powerful for us, too great for us, we stand in awe even as this great feat of miraculous life abundance occurs. It is still radically changed. We do not recognize how much we are, in fact, doing. We can't even control our own impact on this world. It just changes, never to be the same. The last story before we hit the interim that I really want to talk about is the, the meeting between this human and Martian at this strange place where time seems to go on the holiday, um, the night meeting. Um, and we're given a sort of strange ending to this story of the end of the Martians and the beginning of the humans. Namely, that we do, in fact, meet a Martian. One human is on this lonely road in the middle of the night where time seems to, you know, not make any sense anymore. And at the same time, he meets a Martian coming the other way. Now, they don't actually meet. They're not actually there. They try and, you know, give each other things and their, their hands pass right through each other as though one or the other is a ghost. But importantly, we're not sure which is which. The human who meets the Martian emphasizes, you know, your age was long ago. You were dead now and gone and you were very much a product of the past, some, a shadow, a ghost. But the Martian says, why should I believe that? Why aren't you the person who is gone? The member of the past. Um, the conversation that they have very much drives home, first, the point that Bradbury is making about the, the transitoriness of this culture. You know, the humans, too, are doomed, do not believe that they could possibly be the one to die. But on the other hand, we are invited to think of this as being twofold, that maybe this is just an interruption of Martian rule that maybe one day the Martians will be back. Like, we're, it is strongly suggested in, in our you know, story that we were just talking about, The Moon Be Still is Bright, that the Martians have been wiped out to the, last, to the last one. But there's no reason to think that they are. 
Like, it was only one part of the planet that they've explored. And again, like, some of these stories very much are out of sync with the others. They are just stories and not so much like a coherent, like, totally logically consistent novel. What we're told here is that it could go either way, that we don't know. Certainly there was a Martian civilization in the past, but who's to say that there won't be another in the future? Certainly our Tomas, the, the human character here, you know, can see the ruined city that the Martian is on his way to, which suggests that the Martian is certainly in the past. But the Martian's suggestions don't just fall on deaf ears here. They're not pointless. Tomas, too, may just be a visitor to this place. And the Martian civilization that has been here for thousands of years certainly like, outlasted the human civilization that's only been here for a few years. Like, again, based on which story you're talking to, the timeline can vary pretty wildly. But whatever the case may be, the Martian has a point. Your civilization is not permanent. And it won't be. You, too, will pass away. Even if the Martians don't come back, even if it is true that, you know, the Martian Tomas meets is a relic of an ancient past, that's not to say that there won't be Martians in the future and the humans will not themselves be relics someday. The reminder here is stark. That Bradbury throughout this entire passage has undermined every effort that we usually make in our stories about human imperialism and human colonization and human conquest. He has absolutely undermined everything. The people who arrive on this planet are not celebrated, are not heroes. They are murdered straight out by a far superior Martian race, not even because there's a competition, but just out of, like, indifference or out of a sense of, you know, they're presenting some sort of, like, threat to the status quo. Um, or, for that matter, they land and immediately fall to infighting fall to disagreement. Spender starts murdering members of the crew and they have to fight back. Their acts here are presented to us as though they are irreverent or irresponsible. That this is not the, you know, supreme technological achievement of an advanced civilization, but rather the sort of act of a bumbling human race who don't understand the consequences of their actions. Who are just sort of bumping into things like children breaking things without knowing how beautiful these things are that they break. Here we are sort of given that last glimpse. Not only are we bumbling, not only are we, you know, stumbling into things, but our hubris will be punished. We will not last. Our foolishness will come to an end. And so will our civilization. Something that will be even more starkly discussed in the chapters to come. So here at the interim, we're given a chance to reflect. The Martians are gone. There is very little chance of us meeting them again in the near future. Humans are ascendant. And we hope, like Spender, that they will respect the planet that they find themselves on. But we know, like the captain and like, the like Spender himself would also know, that we're not going to. That this is going to be an act of irreverence, that we are going to take over this place and wreck it the way that we've wrecked so many other cultural artifacts in the past. The world we look forward to is a doomed one, in some sense. Ruined, and ruined again.
So in the next chapters, we will see the future of human settlement on Mars. We'll see how humans deal with this world that they've found and supposedly conquered. We'll see the human civilization and its interaction with the Martian civilization to come. And we'll see all of this eventually fall apart, as seems pretty clearly the case even now. I look forward to talking with you about the second half of this book next time. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.